Welcome to episode three of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In episode two, I discuss the many benefits of mediation with fellow family law attorney and mediator Lynn McNally. In this episode, I will be discussing some common myths that surround the topic of separation and divorce with my law partner, Carrie Tortora. Carrie is a board-certified family law specialist and has practiced exclusively in the area of family law for over nine years. I've been fortunate to have Carrie in the office next to mine for the majority of those nine years, and she and I often work together on our cases. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Carrie, I see that you have put together a list of some common myths about separation and divorce. Before we start going through that list, are these myths in any particular order? No, they are just common questions or myths that clients come to us and ask us about during a consultation or at any stage in their case. So number one is not necessarily the most common. It's just a list of, you know, 10 or 11 and they're ones that you run across. That's right. They're in random order. All right. Well, then let's get started. So number one, a person doesn't need papers to be legally separated. That's right. Contrary to popular belief in North Carolina, you don't need to file anything with a court, nor do you need to sign any sort of written document to be separated. The only two things that need to happen in order to be separated are you need to be physically separated, meaning living under different roofs with the intent of at least one of the people that the separation be permanent. And so a lot of times clients will come to us and and say, well, I've been living, we've been living in separate bedrooms for the past three years. Does that mean we're separated? And the answer is no, you have to physically leave the house and in order to be separated. What if you live in separate sides of a duplex? Is that good enough? Interestingly, that has been held not to be sufficient. So you you literally have to have a different roof from your spouse in order to be separated. Okay, but there's no requirement that there's any signed document to be legally separated in North Carolina. Correct. Okay. Number two, if you commit adultery, you lose everything. Not true? That is also not true. While cheating on your spouse may lead to a divorce, it doesn't necessarily mean that you lose all your rights and the other spouse automatically gets the kids, the house, and all the assets. In fact, the only claim to which infidelity is directly relevant is alimony. In North Carolina, in order to be entitled to alimony, there must be a dependent spouse, meaning a spouse who is dependent on the other for his or her financial needs, and a supporting spouse, meaning that spouse supports the other spouse and is more or less the breadwinner in the family. If the dependent spouse commits adultery, he or she is barred from receiving alimony. And likewise, if the supporting spouse commits adultery, he or she shall pay alimony. So alimony is slightly punitive with regard to cheating in North Carolina. What happens if both people cheat? If both people cheat, then their cheating, in essence, crosses out the other, and both parties' claims for alimony are revived. So at that point, it's really just up to the judge to decide how the adultery may impact the person's alimony. Is that fair to say? That's right. 
cheating is also not directly relevant to the division of property. And so just because you cheated or your spouse cheated on you doesn't mean that you get all of the assets or that he or she gets all of the assets. However, the exception or the caveat to this is that if there is dissipation of marital assets or other funds otherwise spent on the other party involved in the affair, then that is relevant to the division of assets and debts and can be a factor for the judge to consider. Do you see that very often in your cases that, you know, one party or the other may have been going on trips with a girlfriend or boyfriend or buying them gifts? Do you think it comes into play very often? Uh, Yes, absolutely. And that's why it's important to have an appropriate document exchange and get all of the credit card and bank statements that you need in order to determine what funds were spent for a what we consider to be a non-marital purpose. And so that is something that the judge has the discretion if you are in, in court to either give a credit to that spouse or to consider it as a factor when the when dividing the property. As for custody, again, cheating is largely irrelevant unless there is evidence that the extramarital affair has directly impacted the children. And so if it's a situation where a parent is shirking his or her parental responsibilities to go out and spend time with this other individual, that can be relevant to a custody decision. Um, Clearly, if the person with whom the parent is having the affair is unfit to be around the children, that also is relevant for custody. But making the argument that the parent who cheated is exercising poor moral judgment or has, you know, a lack of moral values and therefore should not have custody of the children is is not going to be a winning one in court. What if a person is meeting random people on the internet? Let's say they're on some sort of, you know, adult meetup site and they truly are just meeting with strangers. Do you think that could impact a custody case? Absolutely. Well, I I should say it will depend. Yes, it can. Um, If the person is meeting up with people and let's say bringing them into the house, that could expose the children to um, strangers and all unknown people. Um, And it, it shows a poor judgment on the parent's part to be engaging in that sort of potentially risky behavior in the first place. So that is, we're getting closer to a area that that would be relevant to for custody purposes. Okay. Is there anything else that we need to say about adultery before we move on? Nope. Okay. Number three, anything you find on your spouse's electronic devices is fair game. So if I am able to get into my spouse's telephone and look at their emails, why wouldn't I be able to use that information? There are, in fact, rules about what you can and can't look at. And so, for example, if your spouse has a phone, as in your example, that's password protected you've not been given the password and have historically not had access to this device, 
then it's likely not something that you can legally access without some sort of agreement or court order in place. So let let me stop you right there. So what if it is a telephone that maybe my spouse hasn't told me the passcode for, but he or she sits beside me all the time and is punching in the little four-digit code, and I'm able to learn that code just because, you know, of the proximity of the person when they're putting it in. What do you think about that? That's a gray area in the law. I think that that would be a question, questionable and potentially a judge would need to decide that issue before that evidence was used. However, what we do recommend to clients is in order to preserve the evidence on the device, we often work with forensic computer experts to make a mirror image of the information and the hard drive or what have you with regard to the electronic device in order to preserve the evidence so that we can look at it later under the appropriate protections and circumstances. So what about computers? What about information found on, let's say it's a home computer? Generally speaking, if it's a computer that is a quote unquote family computer, it's in a common area, everyone's been accessing it, then it's probably fine to look at information on that computer. What if it is the home computer, but the spouse's email is password protected, and I guess the password? Anytime you guess a password, that's you're getting into an area where it's likely going to be protected and privileged information. So, so what happens? What happens if you access information in a manner that you shouldn't? Are you able to use that information in court? No, you are not able to use that information in court and you are potentially barred from using any information that you got as a result of the information that you obtained through non-legal means. This is called the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. And so we have to be very careful about what information we access because we, number one, don't want to access anything in an illegal manner. But we also want to make sure that we have adequately preserved the evidence we want to use. So that's why preservation is so important. That way, later on, we can have a judge decide whether or not we can look at it, but it's there and it's safe and we can get to it if we need to. That's right. Yeah, there's nothing illegal about preserving evidence. In fact, it's required in court cases. Um, But the issue is the access of that information. So uh, along these same lines of, you know, electronic devices, what about recording? In in North Carolina, it is a what we call one-party jurisdiction, and that means that so long as one party consents to the recording of the conversation, and it can be the party who's making the recording, then it's okay to record. So with that said, the safest course of action would be to, what, have a audio recorder on your person and you may record a conversation that you are participating in, but maybe leaving the same sort of recorder just in a room, maybe it's voice activated, probably wouldn't be permitted. Is that fair to say? That's right. Okay. Number four, 
If my ex is not paying child support, I don't have to let him or her see the kids. Yes. Uh, no, that is a myth. Although many clients think they can tie child support payments to visitation privileges, it's important to understand that these are two independent issues. And so, for example, if you have not received adequate child support payments, you are not entitled to deny your ex-spouse visitation with the children. On the flip side, if your ex or the other parent is denying you from seeing the children, you are not entitled to unilaterally suspend your child support payments. There are other mechanisms for enforcing the payment of child support or uh, the custodial privileges, but what we consider to be these self-help remedies is not appropriate. And so what do you do? What if you have a spouse who is not paying child support that they're required to pay pursuant to, let's say, a court order? Well, if they're not paying their child support as, as ordered, then you would file a motion for contempt, and you would ask the judge to order them to pay child support. And contempt is a pretty effective remedy because the judge can potentially throw them in jail for not paying child support. And so it, it tends to be a pretty good motivator for folks to make their child support payments current. What if you're in a situation where you've never really formalized the child support that you might be entitled to? Let's say it's a new separation or maybe even a relationship where you weren't married and you and your partner have been getting along for some time, then all of a sudden the support stops. What can a person do in that situation? There are a couple different options. Um, you can either try to negotiate a child support agreement with the other party, or if you're unable to reach an agreement on your own, then you would have to file a lawsuit and ask the court to decide. Um, those are the, the two mechanisms that we use to resolve not only child support, but the other issues arising from folks' separation. Um, the Another option would be to seek help from child support enforcement, which is an agency through the county that provides services for enforcing and establishing child support. Myth number five, mothers are always awarded custody of the children. This is not true. And while there used to be an express bias towards mothers, the law is evolving to reflect the changes in our society that both moms and dads are equally capable of caring for the kids. So the standard is now what is in the best interest of the kids. And this is heavily fact-dependent um, based on the circumstances and facts of each individual case. And so there is no clear bias or at least no legal bias towards mothers at this point in time. Yeah. And in my experience, it seems that most courts start off with the belief that both parents are equally capable of caring for the children unless one of the parents is able to show the court why that's not the case. And don't you think that it usually requires some pretty compelling facts? Yes. And I would say probably in the last 10 years or so, it ha we have shifted from a primary caregiver 
scenario being the norm to a what we consider 50-50 or close to a joint physical custody situation where you you do start with the presumption that equal shared time with the parents is in the children's best interest and then we move off of that presumption. Myth number six, children get to pick where they live. This is one of my favorites. We have clients ask us about this all the time. Um, And in North Carolina, when children reach a certain age, and usually that's around 12, they can express a preference to the court and the, the court will consider their wishes. However, they don't get to pick, and the judge is the ultimate decider based on all of the facts and circumstances. In our practice, we avoid having children testify um, for a variety of reasons, including the negative impact that it can have on the children. It can be a traumatizing situation, as well as the fact that children's testimony can be unpredictable. We believe in in This has its exceptions in the appropriate case, but oftentimes there are other ways to introduce evidence of the children's preferences without the children testifying. And that can be through a guardian ad litem or a child's advocate or even the child's therapist in some circumstances. Yeah, I think having the children even express their wishes is super risky for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Who knows what that child is going to say at the end of the day, the child is, you know, part, both of the parents. Right. And so you're putting the child in a very awkward position. If you're expecting him or her to say something negative about mom or dad, he or she may not be willing to do that. Um, I also think it's risky because, you know, children are manipulative. They can be. They have their own agendas. And if one parent is less of a disciplinarian, you know, they may want to go live there just because there are less rules. And so there, it may not be about which parent is in the child's best interest, but more about where the child can get away with more. Um, so I agree with you. I think trying to get in the child's wishes in another manner is preferable to having them either speak with the judge or worst case scenario testify in court. Yeah, we we in even in the most amicable of divorces, we often recommend to our clients that they consider counseling for their children. And this is especially true in those cases where the children seem to be expressing a clear desire to live with one parent or the other. And so That's a circumstance where we would like for the child to have a voice and to feel like he or she has someone who's an objective third party who can listen to his or her wishes. And the mental health professional is in a better place to sort of parse out the the child's wishes and what may be the impetus behind the child making these statements. Well, and actually, too, I just thought of something. In Wake County, at least, you can also ask for a child's advocate to be appointed. It's actually a lawyer who 
is advocating for what the child wants, not necessarily what is in the child's best interest. Um, I know it is possible, like I said, in custody cases in Wake County. I, I'm not really sure what's going on in the other counties in that regard, but also an option. Right. Yeah, certainly this is, it's like like we said, it's always preferable to find a third party to come to court if your case is in court to discuss or testify about the child's wishes as opposed to bring the child into to court to to go through that experience agreed myth number 7 moving off of custody and on to equitable distribution equitable distribution means that you divide each asset and each debt how is this a myth So I'll get to that, but let me give just a little bit of background information first. Equitable distribution is the division of marital property between separated spouses. And so marital property is anything that you and your or your spouse acquire from the day you get married until the day you separate. And that can be anything from real estate to cars to household goods and furniture retirement accounts, stock options, and even things such as frequent flyer miles, credit card points, and pets. Marital debt is also factored into the mix. And in North Carolina, title doesn't control. So that means if an asset is held in one spouse's sole name, it can still be marital property if it was acquired during the marriage. And North Carolina provides that there shall be an equal division of marital property and debt unless for some reason an equal division is not equitable. And there's a laundry list of factors as to why one or the other spouse can ask for an unequal division of property. And so now you get to the split. And regardless of the percentage split, the goal is not necessarily to divide each thing individually Instead, we want both spouses to have the same value of property at the end of the day. And so, for example, one spouse may retain the house and the equity that's in the house, while the other spouse gets more of a financial account or a retirement account. So we we can equalize the division of assets without dividing each individual asset and debt in, in and of itself. So really, you can think about it in terms of an Excel spreadsheet, right? Where you have the assets listed down one side, you have a husband column and a wife column, and basically you go down the spreadsheet and put the asset in the column of the person who's going to get it. And at the end of the day, if the husband's total doesn't equal the wife's total, then a cash payment will need to be made to equalize it if it's an equal distribution. Is that right? That's right. That's a good way of thinking of it. Myth number eight, you should never move out of the marital home. This is a tricky one, and there is a lot of literature and other anecdotal advice that you should never leave the house, but that's not always true. And what we recommend instead to our clients is that before you leave, you need to have a plan, and that plan needs to determine the custodial schedule of the children as well as how the bills are going to get paid. But it's not true that you need to resolve every aspect of your case prior to getting separated. And in fact, 
oftentimes it's easier to engage in those settlement discussions with your spouse when you're not living in the same house. Along those same lines, you know, a question I often get asked in consultations is about the concept of abandonment. And abandonment is where one spouse leaves without justification and without the consent of the other spouse. Um, What I tell folks is that in most cases, judges understand that in order for a couple to be separated, somebody has to move out. Somebody is going to have to leave the residence. And so the issue of abandonment is normally not that big of a deal. The only form of marital misconduct that will bar a dependent spouse from receiving alimony is adultery. And so moving out of the house is not going to necessarily cut off someone's alimony claim. Um, I would say, however, that before deciding to move out, that you should consult with a lawyer as these analyses are very, you know, fact and case specific. And so you want to be sure that you are discussing the facts of your particular case with a lawyer who knows your situation. Yeah, certainly. Myth number nine, you don't need a lawyer. Well, this could be construed as a somewhat self-serving myth, but we believe that it, um, you know, even in the most amicable divorce situations, it's always good to at least have a consultation with an attorney to understand your rights and your responsibilities under the law. And so even if you decide that you would like to do the majority of the negotiations with your spouse yourself, that's fine. And we encourage that to the extent that it it can be a productive conversation. However, again, rather than downloading a form online and trying to draft your own settlement document, it may be good for a lawyer to draft it for you, or at least to have a lawyer review it before you sign something. It's a lot easier to correct mistakes before they are in a fully executed document. Um, and so we always encourage folks, even if you don't have a lawyer to handle your case every step of the way, it's good to have someone to check in with about, you know, initially to understand the law and to be educated. And then throughout the process to make sure that the deal that you're reaching is consistent with what the law would allow. And then at the end, before you sign anything formal, it would be, it's always advisable to have a lawyer review it first. I agree. Some of those paragraphs in a form separation agreement, they may just look like legalese that really don't have a whole lot of meaning, but they can have a real impact on your case. If you delete something that needs to be in there, um, or you leave something in that you're not exactly sure what it means because it, you know, you don't think it applies to your situation. And later on down the road, you're having to ask a court to help you enforce your agreement. You want to be sure that you fully understand what you have agreed to and what all of those paragraphs mean. And so, Even if you reach out to a lawyer simply to have them review your document before you sign it, um, 
that's what I would recommend. Yeah, I mean, a, a little effort on the front end will save you a tons of headache and ag- legal aggravation on the back end. The other thing that we often see in agreements that are drafted by spouses is they might be ambiguous and so they don't necessarily cover all of the points that they need to. And so when a dispute arises, then you're left to, you know, litigate the terms of this potentially ambiguous document and what each of you intended for those terms to mean. Again, investing in a lawyer now may save you significant attorney fees in the future. Myth number 10. Your divorce can be denied if your spouse doesn't sign the papers. This is a myth. And in North Carolina, with very few exceptions, as long as you've been separated for the requisite year, then a judge will grant your divorce regardless of whether your spouse consents. And also in North Carolina, unlike some other states, you can get divorced while your other claims are still pending. And those claims can be resolved after the divorce. But the divorce and the other claims are as though they are on two different tracks. And so the divorce can sort of proceed and move forward. And then all of the other claims can proceed as though the divorce had not happened. Is there any sort of residency requirement in North Carolina to be eligible for a divorce? You have to be a resident of the state for six months before you can file an action here. So if you have just moved here and you have been had been separated for a year, you still couldn't file for at least six months. That's good to know. Myth number 11, most divorce cases go to court. So we always tell folks that there are two ways to resolve the issues arising from a separation, and that can be in court or out of court. We encourage our clients to settle their cases if at all possible. It's more cost effective, it's less taxing from an emotional standpoint, and it's significantly less time consuming. But it takes cooperation, uh, transparency, and a willingness to meet in the middle in order to settle a case. And without any of these, then court may be the only option. And so, um, like I said, we are always prepared for court, but we try to avoid it because of the impact that it can have on our clients. And at the end of the day, when you're, you know, talking about a property case and there are only a finite number of dollars to go around, it doesn't make sense financially to spend money to go after bad, as I like to say. Um, And deciding how much to spend in legal fees really does need to be part of your analysis in determining whether or not you're going to accept a certain settlement offer. You know, it may not be your best day in court, but you may still end up with more money than you otherwise would because you would not be spending those additional legal fees. That's right. And and that's an important consideration, the cost-benefit analysis for the financial claims in your case. The other important consideration when we're talking about custody is that you always 
cede control to a judge when you are in court. A judge who doesn't know you and doesn't know your spouse and doesn't know your children. And that judge, you know, has a lot of other cases and can't give your case the attention that you and your spouse can give it in crafting an agreement that works for your family. And so, again, to the extent possible, and, you know, that requires cooperation on both sides, which is not always the case. But if it is possible, then we are always you know, discussing settlement options with our clients and having those conversations so that if you find yourself in court, it truly is a court of last resort. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been a really helpful conversation to help dispel some of these myths that seem to surround separation and divorce. If anyone has questions for you, what is the best way for them to reach you? My phone number at Gaylor Hunt is 919-832-8488. Again, 919-832-8488. And our website is divorceistough.com. My email address is ctortora, T-O-R-T-O-R-A, at divorceistough.com. And thank you so much for having me today. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year and a Day. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorcestuff.com. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only, should not be used as legal advice, and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions before you take any action, you should consult with a lawyer who is licensed in your state. 